Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Ladies and gentlemen, episode 24 of Hashing It Out. As always, I'm here with Colin, my trusted co-host. Say what's up. What's up? And today's platform, we are talking to Loki. We have Key and Simon here. Um, Why don't y'all give us a quick introduction as to who you are, each of you, how you got got introduced into the space, and uh, what Loki is. Like, What are you trying to solve, and how is it a differentiator? All right, sure, I guess so. Yeah. Okay, you go. You ahead, can go so. first, Key. Key first. No, I said it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so my name's Key. I'm the CTO or uh, tech lead at uh, Loki. I guess my introduction to blockchain was kind of through mainly Bitcoin at first. And uh, I think most people were interested in the astronomical rise in price probably in about like 2014 2015 that's when i started to notice it um and then once i i had a computer science background um, from doing computer science at university and um, i had just started learning about uh, asymmetric encryption and then i got onto bitcoin and i learned bitcoin was almost like this beautiful like uh, applied version of like asymmetric cryptography which i thought was awesome and i thought okay like this is this is everything i've been learning in the com- in like computer science courses except it's applied in real life because i always thought uh, like the theory isn't too interesting but when you actually see an application to this stuff that's when it really becomes interesting so that was kind of my introduction when I was able to apply those two things together, kind of the computer science aspect. And then like, okay, this is like a real thing. Um, I guess what Loki's trying to do different from Bitcoin is it's trying to be a, a private cryptocurrency. Um, but then maybe the further extension to that question is like, what is it trying to do different from say something like Monero, which is already out there as like one of the biggest privacy currencies or Zcash. Um, and I guess what Loki is really trying to do is it's trying to tackle that network um, layer privacy. So although Monero offers transactional privacy, when you give money to someone else, it doesn't really offer anything in terms of like anonymity um, when you're browsing the internet or anonymity when uh, you access uh, special services inside of the infrastructure that we've built. So I guess really it's about data privacy and internet privacy. That's really what Loki's trying to tackle uniquely from other uh, cryptocurrencies out there. All right. Well, Simon seemed to have dropped from the call. He may be having some technical difficulties. <laughs> uh, we'll let him just reconnect and we'll we'll give him the chance to, to give us the same onboarding that you just gave us. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, can you give us up, oh, Simon? You there? Sorry, speaking of Stone Age Internet, should probably <laughs> not switch my VPN to the UK because that's going to have bad results. <laughs> well, perfect. Well, so uh, Key just gave us a good introduction as to who he is and what Loki is. Uh, why don't you do the same? 
Sure thing. So um, I'm Simon. I'm the project lead, um, one of the directors of the foundation of the Lucky Project. Um, and I guess my I got into cryptocurrency uh, about the same time as Key, actually, but for different reasons. I was more philosophically driven. At the time, I was uh, just finishing off high school, so I was uh, very uh, into a lot of political movements and ideas at the time, and I saw Bitcoin as a tool in, in this kind of scheme. But quickly changed my tune from that sort of uh, ideological interest to more of a financial interest when I spent everything I had on Bitcoin for reasons that are still unknown to me. And uh, yeah, from there, I uh, just closely analyzed and watched the space over the next couple of years and traded it where I could. Um, I made some gains, I made some losses, um, as everyone has these stories. But as time went on, I started to take more of an interest in the technical side of things, uh, particularly after the sort of first major rush of ICOs that we saw. I was just deeply uninspired by a lot of the projects that were coming out. And uh, it, it drove me to be more skeptical about the inner workings of some of these projects. And, and it sort of led me to having a greater understanding of some of my favorite projects, one of which was Monero, uh, but also Bitcoin as well. Um, and uh, from there, we just started experimenting with ideas around the start of last year. And um, yeah, from there, we managed to come up with this idea for Loki, which has gradually evolved over time as well. But um, yeah, that's sort of how we got to where we are today. That sounds reasonable. So I guess the first question is, what what does Loki do? Other, than, I mean, like, what does network privacy mean? And what is lacking in Monero specifically that you are overcoming with your network? Uh, so, wow. This is going to be difficult, isn't it? Because we're both going to have answers for this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you go, Keith? Uh, okay. So um, I, I guess the best way to kind of explain uh, where Monero lacks in its privacy um, is to talk about something like Tor. So if you're familiar with Tor, Tor is like this network of uh, anonymizing nodes. The idea is that uh, users run these these routers um, and then basically when you connect to a server or you do any kind of like client server operation, uh, there's a bunch of routers in between you and them. And the process is called onion routing. And basically um, what it means is that uh, really only one hop knows your IP address and hop at the end of the tunnel uh, only knows the, the exit node's IP address. So say when I broadcast a transaction in Monero, I have to broadcast it to the network. And typically what I'm going to do is I'm going to use my local node, which is assigned my IP address, and then I'm going to broadcast that to the network. So the network, the first node that I hit is going to know my IP address straight away. Um, and an IP address for the, the people out there who, who aren't really familiar with what you can do with an IP address, um, anyone can grab an IP address and find out your general geolocation, but people like ISPs, um, you know, state-level actors can actually use this information to hone down to your specific um, address because when you sign up with your ISP, you probably give them some information about you. So really what Loki's trying to do is to remove the IP address part um, from all of your interactions that you have online. Um, and it's doing some things that are interesting on the, the Mixnet side of things, um, above and beyond what Tor is doing. Uh, but yeah, if you were really to bring it in like to what it does differently 
from Monero, like you're able to communicate through the network with like with a very strong degree of anonymity, which Monero has been working on with Covery, but we haven't really seen um, a, a user available release of Covery yet. And uh, we think LokiNet, which is the product we're talking about, will be able to get uh, wide wide user release and uh, and hopefully some adoption in, in the next in the next couple of months. I should point out that Monero, uh, when it's talking about its networking privacy, is only focusing on transaction broadcasting and some other bits and pieces that sit within inside the uh, Monero network. Whereas what LokiNet is working on is the internet more generally. So through this network, we're talking about uh, a general internet connection that you can use to do a wide variety of things that are not related to cryptocurrency, including browsing the internet, sending private messages, uh, doing voice calls, that sort of thing. So uh, Loki is definitely targeting a much more general usage, whereas the networking stuff that's happening in Monero at the moment, say what you will about the state that that is currently in, is only focusing on the peer-to-peer transaction network itself and nothing else. So um, I work for Status and Status is built on Whisper which is a um, kind of a, a dark communication protocol um, as that's a part of the Ethereum stack. And some of the issues of that is like, it's in, in what, it, what it definitely tries to do is make sure that the um, transactional part, not the transactional part, but like where thing, the routing part of a message is completely obfuscated. So you don't know where a message came from and where it's, where it's being sent to. And then also the encryption part of you don't understand the actual message contents as well. And that's a very similar situation to what you're doing. But a problem with that in general, at least in some implementations of it, is the scaling aspect of it. If no one knows where something is going, it usually means that all clients in the network have all the information. How, how is there a similar issue with how you're doing things? Is there a scaling issue in terms of uh, the, the, no, the amount of traffic going on? Uh very simply, onion routing has dealt with this problem. There is very, I, I consider it to be near impossible to design a system where only the recipient can fully understand the, the state of the messages being sent. But in on, onion routing, very simply, uh, the first node gets some information, the second node gets some information, the third node gets some information, and the end user gets some information. But no one, no one of those nodes can build a full picture of what is going on. So that's the basic concept that underlies onion routing. And we believe that with the market-based cyber resistance solution that we have in our routing system, we can prevent uh, any given actor from acquiring a large enough number of nodes to be able to build up a picture of networking traffic. And so this is the exact same system that Tor uses. And Tor does several terabytes. I, I don't know the exact numbers, but... The throughput that goes through Tor on a minute-by-minute -minute basis is absolutely enormous, and there's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't be able to see the same throughput through the LokiNet system. Well, the fact that you don't know how much numbers the Tor uses is a testament to the like the feasibility of the of how it works, right? Uh, the I will like there are some caveats to that, and I will like I I do like to talk about this this issue. So, um, generally, what uh, these these messaging systems use are or like stuff like BitMessage, if you've heard of it, is kind of like a naive implementation of this idea that uh, of what's called a flood fill network. So, 
Um, the idea behind a flood fill network is I have a message and I give that to a router and then the router gives it to all the peers it knows. And then that router gives it to all of the peers it knows and the network floods, or sorry, the message floods throughout the network. So it's very difficult to pinpoint the source for that message because every router receives every message, right? But that's um, incredibly inefficient. Yeah, it's, it's, it is incredibly inefficient. So, um, people like researchers have been trying to tackle this for ages. Um, and what, like, so there's a couple of, there's a couple of people out there like mainframe and I, I guess status, I haven't looked too much into how they actually do things. Um, but there's this idea that you can actually reduce the amount of flood fill you're doing. So, um, it's kind of like a targeted flood fill and we have elements of that in Loki as well. So, um, we have the network is broken into sections called swamps. So imagine you have a thousand nodes and you sort them, um, by the block that they were first registered in, um, because they're service nodes, that's a bit of a technical detail, but, um, imagine you can break the network into little swarms and instead of actually, and then users are also assigned to a swarm. So instead of having to flood the whole network, I can find what swarm a user is in, which may relate to 10 service nodes, for example, and then I can just send the message to those 10 service nodes. So I still have anonymity in the fact that, okay, this user is in this specific swarm, but I only know the IP addresses of the service nodes there. I don't know the IP address of the user, and I only have to flood fill to 10 of those nodes instead of having to flood fill to the whole network. So like there is this idea of like breaking the network into segments and then only flooding to the segments, you know, where the user is in, um, which still provides a high degree of user anonymity, albeit not as if you were doing the flood fill across the whole network. Um, but yeah, of course, flood filling the whole network is a terribly inefficient way to do things. Yeah. So this is, this is a very similar thing to like, um, like what gossip networks are to flooding. Um, but I'm curious to see like how it also, it, it seems that there's this hint of, um, like the concept of sharding here, if we're talking about state and transactional mediums, like is it, how does, how does that, how does that work for a blockchain? Well, it's, it's not. So the thing is, uh, sharding in this, in this term isn't uh, about the blockchain. It's about messages, right? So no one router needs to hold every single message that has been sent on the network because it's not related to consensus at all. Um, because messages in our case are not sent in blocks. They're sent out of band outside of the network. Um, the blockchain is basically what controls the network state. It doesn't actually control the messages that are sent on the network. Um, so like we don't really need to worry about every router receiving every message. So we can break the network into smaller parts because it's not consensus re related. And furthermore, we can take this a step further by not requiring uh, the nodes to have to deal with messages directly. We haven't exactly decided whether or not this is going to be in our final implementation, but certainly one of the options available to us is uh, that users will be able to form an end-to-end -end encrypted uh, direct connection between each other so that each client acts as the server for their own messages as well, meaning that these nodes don't have to be involved in the transmission of messages or the storage of messages just to uh, establish a connection through endpoints to prevent their IP addresses being known to uh, each other and, and the rest of the wider internet. So in other words, we can establish a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, network connection through this network. So neither of us actually know where we are on the actual internet, but we can establish this connection which will allow us to send and receive messages and calls between each other without actually having to get involved with server-side storage on the service nodes themselves. Although we do want that to be 
a fundamental option to allow for offline messaging where the two partners are not online at the same time, which is a very common circumstance. Yeah. So that, you know, that's it's, what it's I, basically a Diffie-Hellman connection. You're just basically negotiating two keys between two people using your routing system. And then that enables all messages to be directly connected without anybody else being able to interfere or intercept them. Is that what you're kind of yeah. saying? Yep. Well, yeah, yeah. And the end-to-end -end encryption that we use is literally just pulled straight from a system that you've probably heard of called Signal. Um, so all of our messaging... That's double uh, ratchet, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the basic like idea though is that peer to peer communication like I know your IP address and my IP ISP knows that I'm communicating with your IP address as well. So like the privacy aspect of peer to peer communications isn't the best, uh, but we still want to keep that option available to users. We just want to have this like system where they can choose. Like that's up to them whether whether they want to com communicate directly peer to peer or not. The the issue with all of these kind of like distributed message systems is once you start to hold data on any of the nodes, it becomes really taxing on those nodes. Um, and you need to give them some kind of reward or prevent spamming in some way. Um, and, and that's why we're trying to hold as minimal amount of data offline as possible. Um, there is still some data you need to hold offline to make a messaging system usable. Because if I send you a message um, and you're offline, I obviously want you to receive that when you come online. But for a vast majority of messages, both both users are online. So I can just route directly to them using unrouting, and then they don't know my IP address in that situation. Um, it's just uh, there, there are some use cases where you need to hold messages offline. Now, speaking of incentivization, it sounds like you're using, because people are using these onion routing, are you, are, are you using your currency to incentivize people to relay um, yeah. pass things around? So like the easiest way to describe this is like uh, Loki is very, it's very similar to Tor, except if every Tor, uh, a Tor relay was a master node and they get rewarded for the, uh, the, the data that they route. So you're essentially, you're essentially creating an incentivized Tor network where uh, all routers are paid for what they do. So it's not so much related towards... Um, you know, like this, this uh, feeling that like I'm helping the tour network and this is really good. It's more related towards like financial, like I want to earn money and I'm going to provide a service for that money. So more like Bitcoin mining, for example, people aren't doing Bitcoin mining because they're altruistic. They're doing it because they want to make money and that secures the network. And we also rely on the game theory that comes with that because we require that uh, all relays on the network also require a stake. So there is actually a penalty that comes for behaving improperly or not meeting minimum standards and this sort of thing. So by introducing the game theory aspect of both the incentivization and the penalization, it gives us a tool to be able to uh, make the network carry certain properties that we want it to have, whether that's storing messages or routing in this mixnet relay or so on and so on. So as long as we can design a system to enable this enforcement effectively, that is uh, not able to be easily attacked, then you can essentially get the nodes on the, the, these mass nodes, if you will, to do uh, whatever it is you want, provided it fits within the economic framework that you've designed. Now, that brings up the other question of that I have is it's kind of like Ethereum has this EVM and these smart contract systems that the actual coin itself has innate value within the ecosystem that Ethereum builds. What can you use the Loki co coin to pay for on the network itself is there yeah okay I'm, I'm i'm relaying messages and then i acquire you know uh 
uh, coin for being a good actor on the network, what do I use that coin on the network for other than maybe sending a transaction? When I open up a message with somebody or a peer-to-peer connection with somebody, do I have to pay for that peer-to-peer connection? No, we think that would be a very poor move on our part. I mean, in theory, that would make the most sense. But given that free alternatives exist uh, for this kind of stuff already, I mean, we've talked quite a lot about the Tor Network, for example. I don't think it is a viable model to be charging for the usage of bandwidth uh, or the storage of messages or anything else that would otherwise be a free system. The way we look at Loki is um, we really do have to build an ecosystem around it. That means that its usage as a currency, as a medium of exchange, as a store of value is the same as it would be for any other major cryptocurrency out there. Um, so we're hoping that by introducing a lot of integrations with uh, the MixNet software and the messaging software, that we'll be able to get a, a decent level of adoption of Loki as a private cryptocurrency, as well as some on-chain stuff that we're doing to try and improve the user experience of, of using such a private cryptocurrency. But um, yeah, we, we, we've, we've looked at this problem and so far we haven't come up with any solutions to drive an internal economy to do with the Loki token, but that may change depending on what we see uh, coming available. Some things that we have been looking at uh, in, as a cursory glance, it would be to be able to pay for distributed hosting, although that is quite a complex problem. And yeah, it is. To be frank, we have some more immediate problems to, to deal with. We have a roadmap that we want to complete before we start to uh, investigate these sort of features. Uh, but at the time being, uh, we don't really have a unique solution to this problem. I think a lot of coins that are relying on staking, uh, penalization and incentivization also face this question. And I think whether or not they're successful is going to largely depend on whether or not the medium of exchange that is involved in this process actually derives some usage outside of this internal system. But who knows? For some systems, it may be purely sufficient to have this uh, looping system where you require a stake uh, and then you get rewarded and then you get penalized if, if you don't do things properly. That, that may be a viable economic model, but I don't think there's been a, a large enough uh, example of this to be able to prove that with any definitive answer whatsoever. So unfortunately, in network... Go ahead. Sorry, I might go ahead. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, like the other way around, like with something like Ethereum, where you need to pay to execute a smart contract or pay to use the network, um, I think we're going to see, and we are seeing, like massive user adoption issues because people expect things free now. Like everything, every service that people use is basically free now. Um, and getting user adoption when they have to pay a transaction fee every time, and especially if it's in cryptocurrency where they have to go to an exchange and they're just like not sure how to use it. Um, and, and the users we're targeting as well are also like these, like the main people that we want to use this are people who are like in countries where they have an oppressive government who are like trying to act or get after them, right? So like they're not going to have access to exchanges. Um, so really what we can do is we can provide a service that is the best privacy coin of its tier. And we think that service nodes are going to be able to offer that. Um, but beyond, beyond that, we just have to, we just have to build the best currency layer possible and then make integrations as well into our system so that it's usable. Um, and if we can do that, I think it'll become a very usable currency. So, yeah, I was going to say like, uh, when it comes to onion routing, um, the more, the deeper the the deeper the onion, the the larger the onion, the more you know encryption layers have to be peeled off. The more um, protected you are against things like 
um, timing analysis and stuff like that. Um, so you don't plan on maybe paying, having people pay for more security or anything like that through your network? Do you feel as though that's something that, um, that, that even would be valuable to the network? The difficulty with, with that is if we were to implement something like that, that would require us being able to develop a system that proves that onion routing has been conducted correctly with the allotted amount of hops. I mean, you can sort of do that from the user side of things. Uh, they can obviously set up the onion themselves, but given that the nodes in the middle don't actually know the exact nature of the steps ahead of them, they can only look at the packet size really, which is generally the same. Um, this is something that would be very difficult to prove to the network that uh, payment is required in the first place. Uh, and there are networks out there that are claiming to be working on or are working on uh, systems where you can monitor bandwidth usage and pay for it. But as Key has pointed out, bandwidth is something that we already have to pay for in the form of ISPs. And to have some additional uh, requirement on top of that is really not going to be that successful, I imagine. Uh, I think it also should be pointed out that the way to get around some of the security issues that you've pointed out is is not by increasing the number of hops. I think if you have a three hop uh, solution to whatever destination you're going to, that deals with the vast majority of threat models that people that are dealing with mixnets tend to have, uh, as we can see through the usage of Tor. Beyond that, the adding the number of hops is not actually that effective at preventing various forms of attack. As you point out, timing and attacks are not going to be helped much more by adding extra hops. The real the real solution to that is to do um, what, a, a true mixnet in the sense that there are spoof messages being sent and packets are being uh, relayed at different times uh, in bursts and, and that sort of thing. But that's a very complex uh, solution to what we consider to be a very basic problem. Essentially, if you think that the threat model that you face is that you're worried about a single entity controlling enough of the internet to be able to watch every single packet as it flows through your onion, it doesn't really matter how many hops you add to that, your threat model is gonna be broken every single time. And there are ways around, but we don't, we don't see that as a viable threat model for most people and it's not our focus. The, the other thing with all of these privacy methods, and this comes from Monero included, is that uh, you, you talk about anonymity sets. So um, when, when you're using Tor and you're using three hops, you're in this anonymity set with everyone else who's using three hops. Now, like in Monero, if you up your ring size from like uh, what, what is the average, I think is 11 or it will be 11 in the next protocol upgrade and you go to 20, for example, then your transactions really stand out on the network. Um, and you can have that same effect if you're using an unrerouting system and you start upping your account really high. It can create these signatures that are very like easily um, seeable from the the uh, looking from the outside network in. Uh, what Simon talked about using like uh, using like lots sending most packets or sending uh, data all of the time is an interesting one. But again, like nearly all of these privacy measures to increase privacy also have this trade-off uh, trade of like, okay, I need to use more CPU power or I need to expend more bandwidth to have like a constant stream of bandwidth coming out of me so no one can analyze which bandwidth is related to Tor. On the most extreme end of these mixnets, people are designing systems where messages get sent out every few minutes. You're artificially dramatically increasing the latency to stop timing attacks. And while it's an effective solution to those timing attacks, 
the extent to which those timing attacks are actually happening in the real world is is not clear and it doesn't appear to be a very significant threat for yeah. most people i think the original idea of a mixnet was from uh david charm i think and his idea was like okay mm-hmm. we have this email server and like everyone sends emails to it and then like and then it collects them up and then at a certain time it like forwards them all out at once so like you can't really know uh whose email is going where but yeah hard, like the latency is, is quite inefficient there so i'm curious here um it seems as though that a lot of this is um strikes a, a strong correlation with the lightning network that's overlaid on top of bitcoin a lot of the at least, at least the routing aspect of this is that, have y'all looked into that and is that a a reasonable parallel to Dura? i hadn't thought of that before I mean, we're obviously targeting very different problems, uh, but yeah, sure. That that's actually not a terrible, um, not a terrible an- analogy. And then the like the other part of this is that you've you've spent a lot of time talking about obfuscating information about the routing of transactions, the network layer of, of of blockchain systems and networks. But what about like the obfuscation of things inside the blockchain once they get inside of them? What what things are you doing to try and offer the same types of guarantees that people use for things like Monero and Zcash. Yeah, I think the the interesting part about this is like a lot of systems like uh, mainframe and I think Stardust to a certain extent, which is an ERC-20 token. I, I might be wrong about that. Yeah, it um, is. Yeah, okay. So like they might have like the best private routing layer possible. Um, but if you need to pay for anything inside of the system, you're straight back to using an Ethereum token, which is as good as using uh, Bitcoin in terms of privacy. So um, Loki is, uh, it's a fork of Monero. So it's it's based entirely off the Monero code base. So we inherit all the privacy features of Monero, like uh, ring signatures, ring CT and stealth addresses um, are all active in uh, in Loki. And we try to keep us up to date with the privacy changes that are mo- moving forward. So stuff like pull proofs um, will be implemented in Loki very shortly. Um, we also have some like ideas on the protocol level to I- enable uh, atomic swaps. Um, but the where where the privacy scene I see it moving is far more towards um, zero knowledge proofs. And I think we'll see some interesting applications of zero knowledge proofs in Monero too. So um, bulletproofs are are zero zero knowledge proofs, and they basically allow us to um, prove that uh, the amounts in a transaction are non-negative in a much more succinct way than the current way that is that is used, which is a combination of Peterson commitments. Yeah, you seem um, to have this like kind of um, battleground between uh, Starks, Snarks, and bulletproofs. Yeah, yeah. I don't think uh, Starks are very much of a contender at all. They they are really only useful for large data sets, and even then, ZK Snarks do the job just fine. Well, I mean, Starks basically removed the idea of trusted setup from um, any any like any kind of uh, zero knowledge proof system. It's just the issue right now is that they're very computationally expensive. Yeah, uh, we've seen the same thing happen with zk Starks. So uh, originally, when they were incepted, they were very computationally expensive, and on the Zcash network right now, they are still extraordinarily um, computationally expensive. Um, to the point where only like a very small minority of transactions on the Zcash network are actually private because of the computational overhead. Um, but the thing is, like, they've, they're releasing Sapling now, which looks to be a very big advance in terms of computation time and the amount of processing power you need. 
Um, so I think it's going to be the same thing with stocks. Like we'll see these like optimizations, which will bring down the computation time. And also like, we're still vaguely following Moore's law. So like uh, comp as computation gets better, like, uh, the two points will meet in the middle. I think there'll be optimization and computational improvement and we'll meet in the middle somewhere where ZK snarks are like really a viable solution. Um, and I think in, in terms of like ZK snarks versus like traditional privacy methods, like ring signatures, they really are much better if they're applied across the whole, um, transaction set. I would agree but that's that. the challenge. Applying it across the whole transaction set is not something that's even been attempted at this point. Yeah. yeah it's still correct. very, very early days. And as far as the ZK stocks things go, we already have a solution that doesn't require a trusted setup and it's called uh, range proof or bulletproof. Mm -hmm. Sorry. I just, uh, I've been reading some material on this stuff lately and I'm not convinced that stocks are going to be a significant part of cryptocurrency anytime soon. Right. But, uh, but bulletproofs are, uh, are, are still large, like compared to a, a zero knowledge, a proof or a ZK snark in, in its current generation, which I'm going to forget the fixed size that it is. It's like something ridiculously low, like 23 kilobytes fixed size for any size proof that you're producing. Um, a bulletproof is still larger than that. It's, uh, it's around, uh, I think, a kilobyte or so, or 1.3 kilobytes. Well, at the end of the day, a lot of this stuff is, is like, like you said, it's it's novel. We're at the we're we're, we're pioneering a lot of the app, applicable cryptography for obfuscating information about systems, and that but also being provable about like transactions are valid. Um, and what what isn't novel or, or or is less novel is the routing system that is used to then pass these messages around. Like Tor Tor and onion routing works. We know it works. That's not that's not really up for debate. And I think that's something that's been relatively lacking within all of the networks in the blockchain ecosystem. Yeah, no one's really been addressing the networking side of things all too seriously. And it's understandable why, given that there are so many other problems to work on at the moment. But it's clear that there is an interest in this, uh, particularly with the Covery project that's happening inside Monero at the moment. Um, although we've been hearing some things lately and from within our own development team that suggest that that's... Uh, perhaps not in the best state it could be in at the moment. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, I think what is novel in what Loki is doing is by combining these technologies and also uh, making these uh, assumptions about what we can do with the game theory behind this incentivization scheme and penalization scheme to mitigate some of the attacks that Tor has faced and mitigate some of the attacks that cryptocurrency has faced simultaneously and address a number of different uh, attack vectors in, in a single project, which is exciting. Did, can, can you uh, elaborate on that a bit? Sure thing. Uh, so essentially what we have come to realize through the invention of masternodes, um, Dash described this to an extent in their white paper, where uh, there is a game theoretical assumption is that above a certain size, uh, or, or like uh, economic size of your network. So essentially we're talking about market capitalization here and liquidity. Um, it becomes increasingly difficult for an attacker to be able to acquire enough of a given token to be able to spin up enough masternodes on a network to be able to do things like temporal analysis, which has been a huge thing for Tor. I think I did some very rough maths the other day and I figured out that in server costs, it would cost you about $50,000 a month to own. Uh, I can't remember how much of the traffic it was. I know it was above the threshold that's required for temporal analysis. 
Um, if you, yeah, if you just spin up a bunch of exit nodes, it costs you about $50,000 a month to be able to control a large amount of traffic. Um, and that for large state level actors and corporations and a very large number of other actors is quite a small cost to be able to effectively attack the network. Um, when you introduce the requirement of a stake and when you introduce uh, concepts such as liquidity drying up uh, and other sort of market dynamics that are at play, it becomes increasingly expensive to perform this sort of attack. And we've been working with an economist to look at some of the macroeconomics at play here, um, Dr. Brendan Markley Tower in the University of Queensland. And uh, he's found that the, mod, the, the assumptions that we've made are mathematically sound to an extent. So obviously if Loki never surpasses the $10 million market cap, the, the cost of acquiring the, the enough service nodes to be able to do temporal analysis on our network would be only a few million dollars. But the assumption is, is that if that changes and if the liquidity assumptions are assumed to be correct, then you know this could easily run into the tens, hundreds or billions of dollars, depending on how large the network is when you start the attack. And the way we look at it is while Loki is relatively small and there is absolutely no usage of the routing network because it doesn't actually exist, it's therefore a very small target and no one's going to bother trying to uh, own a large percentage of the network in order to attack it. So, But as we progress uh, through time and as we uh, turn on the network and as the pickup, then um, we see that it becomes more and more expensive the bigger a target Loki becomes. And therefore, we are afforded more and more protection as the benefits of doing an attack become realized. So there's an issue that I've had um, with the master nodes in general, uh, at least like relative to Dash. And that is like, while all of what you said is true, um, the you have this issue where the people who handle the majority of the master nodes on the inception of the network, when it isn't that big, um, where the stake isn't that big of a deal to have, that distribution of, of I guess, potential colluders um, grows with the network as the as the market cap of the network grows too. So as it gets to the point where it is impossible for a new a new attacker to come in and take a good portion of those master nodes, um, it it means that at that like the there's a large percentage of people who control those master nodes who all think very similarly, and it seems as though um, creating a group of people that can collude together is very easy. And and then also changing that distribution of people who can possibly collude together is very difficult. Do you have anything like to say about that? Yeah, so uh, the way Loki deals with this is that the staking requirement is not a fixed amount. Uh, so the staking requirement starts at its at 45,000 right now, uh, Loki, and it decreases uh, quite rapidly over time. So you see uh, people will start their master nodes, but uh, the entry, the barrier for entry becomes lower and lower as we go on and the network becomes stronger and stronger. So there's always uh, a point at which a new player can enter where like the, the older players are not just like strangling them out. This is the problem that we've seen with Dash where like, the the master node amount is like uh, two hundred thousand yeah. dollars right now, which is it's, unaffordable. It's, you're not going to be able to make one anymore. 
exactly yeah it's just unaffordable for anyone who's like a normal person who wants to get involved in the network so yeah like we we thought about that from the outset and we did think that that was one of the problems with dash so we decided to have this like dynamic staking requirement that lowers over time to let more net network participants in um, while still maintaining some uh like a, a market-based super resistance as well as more players are on the network so um that's kind of detailed in that in the paper i just linked uh the, the crypto economics of the Loki network so we we did go into like a huge amount of detail about this like this was a, a lot of our thinking process when we started the project it really has been like an ongoing process of optimization though as we've come to more realizations so we've recently also released uh, a economics proposal where we uh, suggested uh, alteration to the economic uh, to the emission curve of, of the whole network um, and that hard fork went through uh, I can't remember how long ago it was now I think it was in August uh, about a oh, month ago or yeah. two months ago I think something like that um, and uh, yeah so if you're interested in reading about uh, I think it was like a nine page long proposal or something like that so there's quite a quite a bit of uh, optimization that is included in that paper um yeah then that we, would be a good we, we generally like uh writing papers on our ideas and then uh like bringing them to the community as proposals uh we feel like that's the best way to do network upgrades is to be very clear and then get community sentiment on board um and that'll be more formalized in the future um but this is our kind of way to do it right now that's awesome um uh, now we've we've kind of given a good amount of talk towards what you're doing that's novel in the space, um, and based on what you feel you're doing that's novel in the space, what type of applications do you see flocking to your platform, and and how how do you offer that in terms of like a, like how do those applications like work better on your platform than everyone else? Yeah, I believe you call them snaps and they're part of your messenger service. <laughs> so like, I'm kind of curious what, what you foresee that looking like and how people, because not everybody, I mean, like, this is great for transferring messages. Okay, there's a thousand messengers out there. Um, <laughs> yes, it has features that are unique to this particular network, but not everybody needs that. Um, you know, uh, most people want to build from what I, my, at least my, my take on this, most people want to build stuff. And they want to use a system of value, which they can be ensured is live, has significant liveness, and has the proper security to support their applications. And then there's also scalability. Um, what what are what are the what are, how are you addressing those three major major issues with your coin? Are they addressed? What are what do they like just rank rank those issues as how you think they're problematic for developing applications? And then talk a little more about the snap stuff. Okay, can you uh, repeat the three the three uh, things? Sure, I just asked a ton of crap. I do that a lot. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I, liveness. Like, I'm I'm concerned about liveness. Um, so, I, I, you know, I want to make sure that my message gets through to the person that I I need it to get through to. Um, I need assured assurance that that happens, and I need you know network to know that my my transactions go through. Um, Security. So obviously this whole network is, is based off security. So obviously you built that with that in mind. Um, so I'm not terribly worried about that with your network. And then what was the last one I just said? Dang it, Corey. I think. Scalability. That? Scalability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think we've kind of touched on that, but I would like to just kind of see what whether or not you feel as though any of those are particularly of concern. And then I'd like to learn, hey, I'm a developer. What's stopping me? 
Yeah. So I can cover those three. I think, I, I guess those are in terms of the messenger. So liveness, if you're communicating through, uh, like if you've communicated, if you've got someone's, uh, technically it's called a, a lease set in, in our um, mixnet, but if you've got that, uh, you can communicate through a uh, an onion routing system and the liveness on that is just as good um, as if you were communicating with a hidden service in Tor, but uh, where the hidden service isn't actually a shitty unreliable server and it's just your friend um, on the end of uh, another connection. So liveness is like <laughs> very strong. Like liveness is very strong. You're just adding a couple of hops in between and you can, because, uh, because uh, LokiNet is packet-based routing and not uh, tunnel-based routing essentially you can send multiple uh, you can send multiple packets over different uh, paths in the network so you're not just restricted to one tunnel and if that tunnel fails uh, you lose all of your contact with someone you can actually create multiple paths through the network and then send different packets through those so liveness is like is very good um, liveness is a bit it's a bit diminished on the offline messaging part, but the way we deal with that is we um, we use multiple routes again uh, to ensure that if one of the routes goes down, you still have this like backup route. Um, so liveness is is pretty strong. Security, yeah, that's like probably the main thing that we're tackling. All messages are encrypted using the Signal protocol, so it's probably the best in terms of messaging out there at the moment. Um, and scalability, nothing really happens on the blockchain. The that's the only thing that happens on the blockchain is like the node network is enforced there, um, but all of the messages ha are happening on the internet. They're they're not logged on the blockchain or anything like that. So we don't really have any issues related to to scalability in that sense. Um, in terms of snaps, so um, snaps are more accurately referred to perhaps as hidden services. So you've probably heard of hidden services on Tor. These are uh, websites that are hosted inside of the Tor network. So typically when you're uh, accessing a website on Tor, you're probably going to the wider internet. Um, so you're using an exit node. So basically you have a guard, you have a middle and you have an exit node and you go through those. Um, when you're accessing a hidden service on Tor, um, the server also does not expose its IP address directly to you. Um, so both the server's IP address and your IP address are obfuscated, uh, whereas generally in Tor, just the your IP address is obfuscated. You know the exact IP address of the server. So these are like these are basically like any web service that can be created um, on the traditional internet can also be hosted inside LokiNet as a snap. So if I wanted to create a, a service that was entirely private where no one knew the IP address of my server, so say I wanted to do um, an image board or something where I wanted people to have complete anonymity and I want myself to have complete anonymity, maybe we're talking about politically sensitive stuff, um, then I can actually host this inside LokiNet and keep everything private. And on the developer side, I don't really need to know anything. All I need to know is how to host a web service as I would in the traditional internet. And then we just run a proxy to, um, to LokiNet and LokiNet handles the whole other side of it. So you don't need to learn any different programming languages than you already would as a web developer. You just need to download LokiNet um, and run through a specific port and LokiNet will do the rest for you. Um, so that, that's kind of the, the appeal of, of, of snaps. However, we're thinking about going beyond that as well by uh, obviously in most of the settings that LokiNet will be accessed will be through some dedicated browser or dedicated plugin software. 
Um, and as a result of that, we see no reason why we shouldn't also integrate other useful tools such as having the, the messenger immediately available, having the wallet immediately available, but also um, allowing developers to utilize the public key cryptography that comes along with that. So instead of your, your Snap being account-based that uses email or something else like that, you could just directly use a derivative key of whatever is already existing within the wallet and allow users to authenticate themselves using signatures uh, in browser. So that's another feature that developers can utilize to increase the anonymity and the security of the services that they're offering to users. So uh, this is a little outside of the tech realm, but as a founder, I'm sure you, you encounter these all the time. What are the legal ramifications of throwing up a project like this? It's an interesting question. Um, I've been dealing, uh, most, mostly it's been my role to be dealing with the legal side of things from the inception of the project. And there really isn't any restriction on uh, doing something like this, whether you're participating in the Tor network, whether you're developing on it or a similar project, working on private cryptocurrency, anything like that. There doesn't seem to be any real restriction on uh, creating or participating in these networks. Uh, which is obviously a very good thing. I mean, in certain places, it is, it is obviously illegal. I mean, China is an obvious one. They go to huge lengths to prevent people interacting with the Tor network with mixed success. Um, so there is uh, a number of considerations with the, the legal structuring side of things. When you're running you know, any cryptocurrency project that does an ICO, there's obviously a lot of work that has to be done there. But um, there is the only real thing that we can see affecting what we are doing uh, in Australia is recently there is a bill that is trying to be rushed through the parliament at the moment, which is called the Assistance and Access Bill. And the proposition here is that uh, the government and law enforcement agencies will be able to secretly contact uh, organisations uh, that are providing services to um, the general public where they have uh, messaging services or, or anything like that, where they can, with a warrant, request assistance in helping to undermine the security or privacy of a particular individual. However, the bill is written in such a way that um, the government will not be able to compel organisations to be able to uh, insert backdoors into their code. They won't be able to stop them fixing security vulnerabilities and they obviously won't be uh, be able to do anything about uh, already encrypted information. I think this is more of an effort to get governments to uh, force companies to help them un to understand how best to conduct uh, investigations where encryption is involved. However, there are some pretty uh, extreme uh, penalties for failure to comply with this such as a 10-year prison sentence for anyone that reveals information about uh, any investigations that have gone on in these organisations. Uh, so there's some, there's some stuff that doesn't need to be fixed, but practically speaking, this really won't have any effect on us or any other organisation that deals with um, secure communications uh, other than having to spend some time and money talking to governments to tell them how their system works. And you are a completely open source project, correct? Yes. That's right. So our software is provided without warranty, just like every other um, cryptocurrency and open source project out there, Tor included. So if there are security vulnerabilities, if there are critical consensus issues that cause people to lose money, as with all of these other systems, these are distributed networks. We do not own them. We do not control them in any way other than the code that you see. And that code can be 
forked and altered by someone else. Um, so there's really not a lot that uh, the Loki Foundation itself or any of its other organizations that work on the project have it as far as liability for uh, things that users do or things that happen on the network. And you call yourself the biggest, lo- Go ahead. I, I think the biggest thing here is that there, the specifically, I think this legislation is trying to target non-encrypted information. So uh, metadata, essentially. So even if you use Signal entirely correctly, there still is a uh, there's still a connection of your IP address going directly to Signal's servers. And uh, although they say they delete that. Um, you have to trust them to delete that perfectly. And if there's a bill like this, um, the government can come in and say, okay, you just have to secretly keep all of that metadata. Although we can't break the encryption of your messaging scheme, just keep the metadata of everyone who communicates with your servers and then uh, keep the metadata of all of your servers, like when where they send their messages to. So like that's the type of information that they're going to target. With Loki there is that information isn't kept like there is no one to keep that information because there's no central servers um each service node will have that information available to them but because there's thousands of service nodes and because we use onion routing you only really have one section of that information you need multiple sections to come to a conclusion on who is talking to who so you call yourself the loki foundation how are you guys structured to fund this project so I'll briefly explain how the funding for Loki has gone down. So in essence, we started a non-for-profit organization called LAG Foundation Limited, which is a company limited by guarantee based here in Australia. Uh, The constitution is derived directly from the Australian Charities Commission uh, template constitution that they provide. So like most other non-for-profit organizations, we have a rotating board of directors, a membership base that votes on their performance, and uh, we're also legally obliged to spend the money on the objectives uh, that are laid out in the constitution. We haven't got registered charity status yet. We have made a submission for that, um, but we, we hope that that will go through. Um, and essentially, uh, the pre-mine was conducted by the Loki Foundation, uh, and from there, tokens were sold in a SAFT agreement format as many other ICOs have done. And from there, uh, the tokens were issued and uh, the money sits within the foundation. There are other uh, companies and individuals that receive funding from LAG Foundation Limited just uh, basically for convenience as keeping all of the employees inside uh, LAG Foundation Limited is a bit of a headache for a lot of the operational team, but that may change in in time. Uh, And that's essentially how it works. So what we're aiming for is like a very high degree of transparency with the funding. Uh, And then the other aspect of this as well is that baked into the protocol is uh, 5% of the block reward, although we're uh, planning on changing this so that part of this 5% is also sent to a decentralized uh, funding system, similar to what we see in Dash, where a small amount can be used to fund any project, provided that the service nodes agree to vote on it. Uh, but for the time being, 5% goes directly to the foundation. So 5% of all emissions goes to the foundation. But for context, um, that's actually not a very high fee given the current economic situation of Loki. Um, if we look at our current uh, spending rate on the size of the development team that we have, um, and you assume that we're being fiscally responsible, the the block reward itself is even if Loki was worth a dollar, is only really going to cover about a third of our current burn rate, which is not sufficient to 
uh, sustain the company in any way. So we hope that uh, people can accept that having a large development team and pumping out as many features as we have been in this short time frame is is valuable, and that this ta uh, this dev tax, as people often refer to it, is not only justified but also less than it should be. And I don't expect that we'll want to change it up, but it's certainly a consideration. I think the model we're most closely following and probably a diminished version of this is that of the Zcash Foundation. So Zcash Foundation is a registered uh, non-for-profit in the United States, and they also take a percentage of the block reward. I think for Zcash, it's 20%. Actually, I discovered something very, very curious about the Zcash uh, structure that I find to be uh, very concerning, actually, which is where the foundation, the founder's reward that that 20% that you mentioned does not go directly to the foundation in any regard. It goes directly to people like Zuko and some other employees and other founders. Yeah, it's, a, it's a direct payout. It's a direct payout? To, to, the, to those like people. Yeah, 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 that's exactly right. And then from there, they donate it to the Zcash Foundation. If you ask me, I think that's the complete opposite way to do it. And uh, I don't know what accountability mechanisms are put in place to ensure that this system is, is fair and just. Uh, but we, as far as I can tell, there isn't a lot of public information available on this, which is a concern. So I know that you've... Uh, so I, when I first heard about you, I saw that talks from New Cypher was, I believe, an advisor or... Uh, is he advisor or on your board? I can't remember. Um, you know, are you... I haven't told him that we want to invite him to become a member of the foundation yet, but uh, maybe <laughs> we'll it here first. Well, cool. So Surprise talks. Are you working <laughs> with that group at all? Or is this like, uh, are you guys operating mostly alone? What are your partnerships for getting this stuff going? Uh, yeah, so with New Cypher, um, we don't really have any direct working relationship with anyone else other than Tux. He's been providing us advice on some of our cryptography schemes when we've been doing architecture. Um, but I've been hanging out with basically all of the new cypher team i was with them in berlin uh it was three weeks ago now but we were at some conferences and stuff and um you know we have a we have a great relationship and we share a lot of information between each other but uh it, there, there doesn't appear to be a way in which we can collaborate meaningfully at this time but who knows that may change but yeah we have discussed how proxy re-encryption which is what they're working on could be readily implementation implemented as an additional service on the loki network but that's kind of stealing their thunder and is not that interesting to us. Like that is not our core focus in any way, shape or form. But we are working on similar solutions to this uh, incentivization problem. So, you know, they obviously have an incentivized uh, node network that does stuff off chain and so do we. So we've been talking about the design of those systems a bit. But um, yeah, that's the Yeah, that's what I was kind of hoping there was. It doesn't sound like there is, but like it seems like these two projects mar are marriage made in heaven. Um, for their incentivization model on their system versus using something that's anonymous um, for spend like yours. Uh, you know, it just seems like the two kind of marry very well together. And I was kind of hoping you guys were working together on a project or something, but it doesn't sound like that's quite come to fruition at this moment. So uh, we've certainly think... discussed uh, certain possibilities, but I don't think that there is any real drive to do that at the moment. We're both quite small teams. We don't have infinite funding. We're working mm -hmm. on very specific problems. We just happen to be using a similar model and we happen to have ideological uh, alignment on certain issues. But I think that's about as much as we can say for now. 
I think it would make a lot more sense if we are were an ERC twenty token as well. Then like collaboration would be a lot easier. But since we're our, our own native blockchain that's based on Monero, it makes collaboration with uh, Ethereum and ERC twenty tokens quite difficult. Yeah. 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 So I guess uh, <laughs> I only have one remaining question. <laughs> and uh, so this is going to be obviously used for bad shit. Like, that's just like, you know, like, yes, there will be good legitimate use cases. I'm not going to deny that. In fact, there's probably they're probably going to outnumber um, the bad ones, but it, it could it could clearly be used for bad stuff. I mean, you brought it up earlier, politically, um, politically um, charged, you know, messaging, you know, child pornography would be one um, paying for sex, sex trade. Um, these are all things that are currently, you know, done through Bitcoin and Monero um, via Tor. And you're just kind of taking those two ideas and mashing them together. Um, what do you feel like uh, you're I, I, obviously you pride in the um, privacy over everything else. But, you know, how do you feel about your network being used for those kind of use cases? Obviously not good. I mean, that's that's clear. But we're not unique in any regard when it comes to this stuff. As you've pointed out, we are an amalgamation of previous technologies that have also had to face this reality. Um, but what has always driven me, me personally anyway, as far as privacy goes, is that privacy is a key tenant of democracy. And if we can't have freedom of thought, we can't have freedom of speech, then we really don't have a, a leg to stand on when it comes to electing representatives and having a fully functioning rule of law. So I think it's important that we have tools available to us wherever we live to be able to express what we think and what we feel, however controversial it may be in the eyes of whoever currently holds the reins. In the West, things are very stable or, you know, people have realized that with Trump coming to power and some other stuff in Eastern Europe that, you know, things are always not as always as stable as uh, they have been. Um, but Practically speaking, no one is being silenced or, or yet, or so we're led to believe. Um, but, you know, there may come a day in, in the West and it's coming uh, to the front all of the time in other parts of the world where um, democracy is being undermined by uh, the repression of people's voices. So I think privacy tools such as Loki are critical to maintaining uh, freedoms of individuals. I think also when you make even a cursory analysis of the traffic that is actually on tour, you see that uh, about 94% of the traffic is traffic that is exiting to the normal internet. So people are just using it to browse the normal internet. Um, so I, I think like this argument that Tor is only used or is majority used for um, like, you know, illicit, illicit activities. I think uh, it doesn't really stand by itself when you actually look at the statistics as well. So totally I mean, agree. Yeah. The, the other thing is like, I, and I will add this to Simon's point. I think he was very correct about the democracy thing. Um, the other point I would add in, in here is like accountability. You really need like some of these big third party organizations, Facebook, Twitter, um, you know, even even larger governments, they need accountability. 
And if they control all of the means for which people can get their information, then there's no accountability anymore. So this is where we've seen like services like WikiLeaks um, really like blow the lid off a lot of things that were happening in the government that otherwise probably would have never gotten out to the people. So um, we need these kind of we need these kind of organizations, and the best way for them to to move forward is to use anon ah, anonymizing services. Um, like Bitcoin, um, Monero, Loki, and and uh, and Tor. So uh, all of these things kind of kind of come hand in hand, I think. And yeah, I like, to, I like to think of it as the third estate of information is kind of what we're kind of looking at here. If you know French history, so yeah, yeah, right. Um, as a final note, for those that think that the big tech companies are totally benign and incapable of of uh, of doing nefarious things. Say what you will about Alex Jones, but the fact that there was a coordinated shutdown of all of his social media and, and basically 90% of his traffic, there was a coordinated shutdown of his channels. That's like something that doesn't happen very often for people who aren't terrorists. And there is no reason to believe that things, if, they, if, if things go sideways, that these companies can't be compelled to do things like that to people with good intentions or uh, sane opinions. It, it's all about where the Overton window sits. And while Alex Jones definitely sits on the fringes of that window, um, I think it's a good example to show that these tech companies have the power and actively utilize the power to suppress and silence people. And I think uh, by developing privacy tools such as Loki and encouraging the public to have an awareness of these tools um, in events like uh, in, in potential futures to come, we can see uh, a workaround of potential censorship issues that we may see in the future. So I think, um, like, despite whether or not you agree with uh, the, um, the the message of Alex Jones, it's the um, display of power that exists uh, within the companies that to, to silence them, and and and. What we're what you're trying to do, and what a lot of people who are doing something similar to you, is changing the message from "don't be evil" to "can't be evil." And that's right. And that's a that's a very important distinction to make. And I think what a lot of cryptography based solutions do is moving it towards the needle of "can't be evil." If you remove the option altogether, then you don't have to worry about it. Exactly. Said it better than I could. And um, I think that might be a great way to wrap up this episode. Is there anything that um, we didn't get around to asking you that you hoped you hoped we would. No, I, I can't think of anything. Other than um, if you are pre if you're interested in participating in testing of our new routing protocol, we are currently rolling out uh, sort of an alpha test of the routing protocol itself. And um, Jeff, our primary developer on this on this project, is uh, looking for some people to help test debug and, and so forth with the software he's writing some user docs at the moment so if you want to get involved in that uh please go to our github loki project loki dash project slash loki dash network is where you'll find the routing protocol um software where you can get involved in helping test that if that is something yeah. of interest to you or right. you can just look up loki net or uh, loki network i'll add that into the show notes so people can just click on it whenever they listen to this episode convenient yeah awesome all right, guys. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Um, for those of you listeners, if you enjoyed this, please look Loki up. Uh, like this episode. Subscribe to the podcast on the Bitcoin Podcast Network or hashing it out by itself. You can find us on anywhere you listen to podcasts. 
Uh, tell your friends. Talk to us on Twitter. Join us on the Slack. Do whatever you can. Reach out. Uh, thanks for coming on. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Okay.